turn your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. Reading, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there will be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with string instruments. Let us pray. Father, we just thank you for this beautiful Sunday, Lord. We thank you for your sovereign grace and your mercy. Lord, we pray now specifically for our pastor, Pastor Rod, who's not feeling well. We pray, Lord, that your healing hand will be upon him and that you will take away the pain, Lord, that he's feeling. I ask that you just um, pray that he'll be able to um, just sustain the pain for now, but that the doctors will find what's, what's wrong, if, and it's nothing too major, Lord. And we just pray that you'll be with him and his family as they go through this. Be with us now as we sit under the preaching of your word. May your spirit soften our hearts and open our eyes to the glory of your word, to the beauty of your gospel. Lord, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. You know, after God saved me in high school, it was hard for me to have a firm commitment with my walk with God. My commitment at times was like a wave. I mean, I was a young Christian at the time. I did my best to go to church, read my Bible, and pray to God. But it wasn't until a couple years after that I was saved when God would place a situation in my life that really changed my commitment with him. You see, when I turned 19, my brother was diagnosed with a heart condition that hospitalized him for some time. And for most of us, when a loved one, especially a close family member, is suddenly in a serious condition and taken to the hospital, it gets our attention. As soon as my parents told me, I, just, I rushed to the hospital. I, mean, I remember this moment so vividly, and I was, I was praying. I've never prayed like this before. You know, in times of difficult circumstances, you, you learn how to pray. And so as I approached the hospital room, I stepped in and tried to talk to my brother, me, the young Christian, very casual in my walk with God. Let me be honest with you, I didn't know what to say. I was sad. I knew I was a Christian, but I didn't know my Bible well. So I, ju I just prayed with him. That's all I could do. You know, my parents stayed that night with him, and I went home by myself. And I remember walking into my closet, and, and I just started crying like a baby. I was weeping. I was crying really hard. And I called out to God because I was angry. I was more frustrated because this was just a very dark time in my life. I was paralyzed. And in the darkness... I started to bargain with God. Have you ever done that before? I don't advise on bargaining with God. 
But in my immaturity, I said, Lord, save my brother. Don't take his life. I will follow you. I will go to church. I will read my Bible. I will serve you wholeheartedly. I will do my best to know you more. Like I mentioned, bargaining with God is not something I recommend. We'll never amount to the promises we make to God. But we have to believe the promises God has for us, which can only be found in his word. It was like God was lightly tapping me to get my attention when he first saved me. But this incident with my brother was like a punch in the face. It was more like a a godly punch, um, if you could say. It was like God saying, you have to know me in order to understand what you are going through. Stop questioning me and know that I am God. This morning, Habakkuk shares a similar experience in in his interaction with God. I think most of us can relate to this time in history. Maybe today we're faced with a similar situation. Maybe we're questioning why certain things are happening. Personally, personally, we might be going through trials. We might be facing hardship, physical pain, marital strife, cancer, or even death of a loved one. For some of us, we might be questioning what on earth is going on here in America or around the world. You scroll through Facebook or you watch the news and you ask yourself, why? Here are some of the events that have transpired recently. We, we all know, we're all aware of the Supreme Court decision on the legalization of gay marriage. We know the cruelty of Planned Parenthood and the thousands of babies being killed. We see the racial tension. We see the lack of respect for law enforcement. We know about the refugee crisis around the world. And as one of your pastors, I can never give you a perfect answer as to why these things are happening. But I can always and will always, I can and will always point you to his word. Which brings us to our text this morning. I know it says preposition. It's proposition in your bulletin. Um, Here's my aim. In the midst of suffering, we are to rejoice in God in whom we find our true strength. You know, before we jump into our our text in chapter 3, it's important that we try and understand the whole book of Habakkuk. So I'm just going to give you a flyover of the book leading to our passage, starting with chapter 1. In chapter 1, we see Habakkuk's first complaint and God's first response. We really see the burden of Habakkuk. His burden is that Habakkuk wants us to see, wants to see justice being done. He sees all the sin, he's like, what's going on? I wanna see justice, Lord. Let me read to you in chapter one, verses two to four. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. 
for the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Habakkuk is essentially looking for an answer as to how can God let let evil go unpunished? Where is the justice? Maybe some of us feel the same way this morning as we approach God with our questions. We say things like, look, Lord, look at all the things that are happening. Why? Why are you allowing this? Then we see God's response in verses 5 to 11. God responds to Habakkuk indicating that judgment will come upon his people. The sovereign God will bring judgment at the hands of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. See, God used the Chaldeans as instruments of judgment, which is really astounding. Look at verse 5. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. This is eye-opening to Habakkuk. I mean, you know, his people were sinful, but the Babylonians were even more sinful. And he's saying, I'm going to use the more sinful people to take away all your people. The second thing we see in our text in Habakkuk this morning is found is Habakkuk's second complaint and God's second response. But if you look closely... We have to see what Habakkuk affirms. He affirms his belief in Yahweh, the living God. Let me show you. It's in verse 12. Habakkuk complains, God responds with unthinkable judgment, and then Habakkuk is ready to make a second complaint. But what happens? He contemplates on God. He acknowledges his faith and trust in God in verse 12. Let me read it. Are you not from everlasting O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment, as you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You see, Habakkuk had good theology. The second complaint was, how could God use an evil nation to judge Judah? God responds in saying that the Chaldeans will be judged as well. You see, our, govern- our sovereign God is in control over the oppressor and also the oppressed. He will accomplish his purpose, not according to what we want, but according to his sovereign good mercy. God indicates that the wicked will not go unpunished. And he gives the contrast between the wicked and the righteous in verse 4 of chapter 2. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. This verse is, is really the theme of Habakkuk. The righteous shall live by faith. God is saying your faith is what will keep you going on in the, keep you going in the Christian life. In fact, the Apostle Paul quotes this verse in Romans and also in Galatians to reiterate the doctrine of justification by, by faith alone. The faith that we received is a gift from God and that faith will carry us on to the Christian life regardless of any suffering that we're going through. Third, we see Habakkuk's prayer in chapter 3. You see, Habakkuk finally realized that he needed to stop focusing on what he did not know and start focusing on what he did know. 
Instead of worrying about why things were going a certain way and why God would allow such terrible events to happen, Habakkuk stood back and realized that God is an eternal God, that he's a righteous God, that he is a holy God, that he is a God who does no wrong, and that he's a God who is always right. And that changed Habakkuk. Once he realized what he knew about God, it was much easier to cope with what was to come. You see, sometimes we forget what we know about God during difficult circumstances. We can be a church that loves the word, that loves theology, that loves expository preaching, but when our world crumbles, we sometimes forget. But God never forgets. And Habakkuk remembered God. We find it in chapter 3. You see, all through chapters 1 and 2, Habakkuk sees what God would eventually, sees what God would eventually do. Now, we see in chapter 3, we read Habakkuk's psalm. This is his prayer. You know, I'll, I'll reference more verses in chapter 3 a little later. But let me take you directly to, to verse 16 in chapter 3. It starts off, I hear and my body trembles. You know what that means? In the Hebrew, that means he, he was crying. Habakkuk was scared for his people. He was scared for himself. Right? He was given a vision of the Chaldeans and that how they'll destroy Judah. What, is he, what does he say? It continues, my lips quiver at the sound. Rot, rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Legs trembled, shaking. His legs aren't holding up. He was smitten with grief. What happens? If you read on, what does it say? It says, yet I will wait quietly for the day of trouble to come upon my people who invade us. Here's what he's saying. I'm so filled with sorrow. I'm weeping uncontrollably. I can't stand on my own two feet. And I'm filled with peace. Here's why I'm focusing on verse 16 first. Some of us might think we have two options when faced with suffering or trial or despair. Either we rejoice or we have deep sorrow. But Habakkuk rejoices in his sorrow. Why? Because you, you don't quietly wait while your body trembles or your lips quiver and you're shaking or your legs tremble you don't quietly wait for that that's rejoicing in sorrow but it doesn't end with verse 16 which takes us to our passage today in verse 17 we first see Habakkuk's vision though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vines the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food and there be no herd in the stalls the economy of Judah at the time was based on agriculture and livestock. Let me paint this picture for you. The first three items that we see there, the figs, the grapes, and the olives, those are all permanent crops. The next item, the fields, those are annual crops, staple foods. You know, all the sources of calories that are, that are available, they weren't, they weren't available anymore. And finally, we see the flock and the herd or, or the cattle. Right, the sheep and the cows. 
So what do we see? There's, there is no permanent crops. There's no annual crops. And there were no livestock. What's left? Nothing. Let me speak in today's terms. No job, no insurance, no income, no money in the bank, no food. Right? Judah, they, they couldn't apply for unemployment. There's no homeless shelters to go to. There's no food stamps. There's no family to go to because everyone was wiped out. Eventually, this was a slow death of starvation for some. So some of us might be thinking, this didn't really happen, right? It wasn't that bad. Let's have a quick history lesson. You know, scholars say that Habakkuk received this vision about 20 years before Jerusalem was destroyed. Some also say that Habakkuk was alive to see the destruction, maybe even killed in battle or died of starvation. But you know the prophet that was, that was for sure there? is Jeremiah. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon surrounded the city for two years, starving the people into submission. The, Chal- the Chaldean army looted, murdered, and destroyed everything. Who wrote the book of Lamentations? Jeremiah, right? I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but if you could turn there with me in chapter 2, I want to point out some key verses. And this is what Jeremiah witnessed, starting in chapter 2 of Lamentations. Verse 1. How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. Verse 2. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the habitations of Jacob. In his wrath he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has drawn from them his right hand in the face of enemy. He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. Then if we scroll down or go down to verse 11, my eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out to the ground because of destruction of the daughter of my people, because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. Then verse 17, the Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. And lastly, in verse 22, you summoned as if to a festival day, my terror is on every side. And on the day of the anger of the Lord, no one escaped or survived. Those whom I held and raised, my enemy destroyed. And you can't begin to imagine what was going on. Habakkuk saw all that would go on during this time. We may never go through certain situations like in Jeremiah's time but we are reminded of our own situations. We're reminded of our own sufferings, maybe in the past, maybe what we're going through now, or even in the future. You might say things like, though my household is falling apart, though I've lost family, 
though I've been afflicted with illness, though I've lost my job, though I don't know what will happen next. I mean, you fill in the blank. You know, the Bible doesn't say we will have a miserable life, but it does say that we will, at times, have a painful life. I mean, Jesus, in his words, what does he say? In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So verse 17 tells us what Habakkuk saw, and in verse 18, it shows us his response. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. The important thing to note is what Habakkuk does not do. What happens? He doesn't get angry. He doesn't avoid it. He doesn't think it over. What does he do? He rejoices. Remember what I said about verse 16? In spite of all the things we read, he rejoices. That's rejoicing in your sorrow. Joy in the Lord happens in your sorrow. Let me say that again. Joy in the Lord happens in your sorrow. Grief and sorrow should enhance our joy. I mean, that's why we sing songs like, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. We have nothing, and when sorrow overwhelms us, as Christians, we have one thing, we have one place to turn, which is Jesus Christ. I mean, that's why the world thinks we're so weird. We are joyful, yet sorrowful people. I said this when I preached on Philippians 2 a couple weeks ago. Jesus was what? A man of sorrows, Isaiah 53. Why? Because he was not consumed with himself. He was this perfect man, And when you're perfect and when you're not consumed with yourself, you know, you see, you feel the sadness of the world. Joy happens in sorrow. Habakkuk believed this. Notice what else is taking place here. You see repetition. Why? Well, the Bible's full of repetition. It's not to annoy you. Um but it's to get your attention. Remember the the Apostle Paul in Philippians? Rejoice in the Lord always. Let me say it again. Rejoice. What happens when we read Psalm 119? I know some of us did a study on here. How much repetition is going on there? It's like almost every, every eight verses, right? The themes, the walk, the meditate, the understand, the revival. Keeps going. Every eight verses just keeps going. Repetition allows the Bible to go deeper into our hearts and our minds. We see Habakkuk's vision. Then we see his response. Now we'll take a look at Habakkuk's strength. God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Where does Habakkuk find his strength? In the high places. Here we find a metaphor. To rejoice in suffering is like walking on the mountaintops in safety. You know, the way up to a mountain can be dangerous sometimes. When we were in Bolivia, we were driving in this taxi, and it was raining, and it was muddy, and we were driving up the side of the mountain, and there's just this cliff. I probably no one else was scared, but I was, I was 
I was getting really scared. Um, I was holding on to the seat, and, and he was driving up the mountain in the rain and mud to, 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 to go see the, the Inca ruins. And, you know, one little slip, and, you know, we were gone. I mean, some, sometimes we would drive, and the tires would just keep spinning because we couldn't get up the hill because it was so muddy. Um, the, the taxi couldn't eventually, I mean, they, the taxi couldn't go all the way up the hill, so he had to drop us off. And so we had to walk up this muddy hill, and we just had, like, sneakers on. We didn't have any track shoes. And so we were walking up this hill just trying to be very careful that we won't slip. And then there's this cliff here, and I know Adam sometimes would kind of grab me and say, hey, you almost fell. I don't want you to fall off the cliff. And so, you know, I mean, it was, it was just a very scary moment. Yes, please come to Bolivia next year. Um, but it, it was dangerous, right? But once we reached the top, it, we overlooked this, this beautiful view of Bolivia. I mean, I was relieved that we were finally out of danger. You know, in, in ancient times, the safest place would be where? At the highest places. Why? Because in all directions, they could see what was coming. They had a better, better vantage point. You could see for miles, even days, for what or who might attack you. You see, when disappointments and trials come, and they will, it's pushing you to the highest places spiritually, pushing you to the mountaintops, or it could push you somewhere else. What do I mean? When faced with suffering, people respond differently. Some people get softer, maybe even more tender, but some people get hard-hearted. Some people become more compassionate, and there are those who get bitter. Some get more humble, while others become arrogant. Ever seen someone become arrogant in suffering? They, th- they say things like, you don't know what I'm going through. It's a very self-righteous attitude. But there are those who become humble and are not scared in saying they need help. You know, in the context of the church, when faced with trial and hardship, we want to surround and help those who need help. Don't ever be afraid to ask if you need help. You see, suffering will make you far better or far worse than you were before. Let me say that again. Suffering will make you far better or far worse than you were before. Suffering will make you fall farther than you've ever fallen and destroy you spiritually, emotionally. Or suffering will put you on the heights. And that's what's happening. The road to suffering is treacherous, but God is there, making your feet like the deer. God comes down and helps you tread on the high places. That's closeness with God. That's what Habakkuk was saying. From there, you have a better vantage point in your life. You can face the trials in your life because you can see clearly. You can think back and remember God's saving love for you. Habakkuk had a beautiful trust in God. He believed in the faithfulness of God. God put him in the high places. In Psalm 90, what does it say? He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. What did Job say? Though he slay me, 
yet I will what? Trust in him. Let me add to what's really amazing in chapter 3. Habakkuk didn't have the four Gospels to turn to. He didn't have Jesus' words or, or Paul's letters. But he did know about God's redemptive plan of salvation. He knew about the redemption of his people, where? In the book of Exodus. The Gospel was found in Exodus. Let's look over chapter 3 once again in verse 5. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. What is that? That's how God got his people out of Egypt, through the plague. Verse 13. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. That's the exodus of God's people. God saved his people. Look at verse 15. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. That's a crossing of the Red Sea. What is Habakkuk doing? He's going back to the gospel he knew, the gospel found in Exodus. God delivered his people, and he will continue to do it time and time again. Habakkuk is remembering, remembering, and remembering. Verse 16, I will wait quietly, right? I have peace. We have to connect what we know about God and what he's done in the past in order to help us live in the present. Let me say that again. We have to connect what we know about God and what he's done in the past in order to help us live in the present. Let me conclude here. Like I mentioned, suffering will either bring us closer to God or farther away. You know, after months in the hospital, my brother eventually came home. At the same time, I grew spiritually. It wasn't a legalistic thing that pushed me to follow God. I didn't want circumstances to determine my joy. I wanted God to determine my joy. It was the first time I started faithfully attending a local church. I got baptized. I even became a member. Eventually, I started serving in ministry. Why? Because God used a trial in my life to push me into community with him and the local body, the church. In my own sorrow, I found joy in God. Let me close by taking us back to Lamentations. If we turn there to chapter 3. Chapter 3 of Lamentations. Chapter 3, starting with verse 22. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, Therefore, I will hope in him. Go to verse 40. Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. In one of the most terrible events in human history, Jeremiah could say this, Your mercies never come to an end. Great is your faithfulness. I put my hope in him and I will return to the Lord. 
you might see what's going on in this world today, what's going on in your personal lives, and question God. But we must remember, remember, remember God's redemptive plan. We must remain faithful. Because what? Because the righteous shall live by faith. And we must return to the Lord. We find peace in the high places. That is where God is. Let us pray. Father, I don't know what some of us are going through or what we've been through in the past or what you will take us through in the future. But we do know, Lord, that your word stands forever and your word will live forever. And so this morning, in our joy, but also in our suffering, remember your gospel, that you died for our sins, that you lived the life we could not live, died the death that we deserved, so that we will have everlasting joy in you forever. Lord, remind us of this as we embark on celebrating as a church for four years, Lord, next week all the trials that we've been through as a church and maybe within our own families, how far you have taken us, Lord. And we give you praise. In our sorrow, Lord, let us find joy in you. Take us, Lord, to the highest places so that we may have peace. All these things we ask in Jesus' name, amen.